Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko, and Figilelingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, a dust to dawn curfew imposed on Kaduna City in north central Nigeria, and the DRC's national coordination of the Catholic League Council believe the country's government has failed to secure Congolese and should improve or resign. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. <laughs> A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Ethiopia has signed a peace deal with the separatist Ogaden National Liberation Front, the ONLF, formally ending more than three decades of insurgency in the eastern Somali regional state. Formed in 1984, the ONLF had been fighting for the rights of ethnic Somalis living in eastern Ethiopia to self-determination, including the option of secession. The peace talks took place after the Ethiopian parliament in July removed the the ONLF from a terror list, which prompted the group to declare an indefinite unilateral ceasefire in August. Since taking office in April, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has released imprisoned dissidents and prioritized reconciling with the country's various opposition groups. Equatorial Guinea's main opposition party says 34 of its members have been freed from prison following a presidential pardon, however many had been tortured. Those released include Jesus Mitoga, the sole parliamentary deputy of the opposition Citizens for Innovation Party, which was dissolved in February. The party says one of the released prisoners had a broken arm for nine months and two others died in jail in May and August, respectively. Authorities have denied this. President Teodoro Obiang Ngema issued the pardons last week Wednesday to mark Equatorial Guinea's 50th anniversary of independence from Spain. 
The United States has congratulated the people of Cameroon for largely peaceful elections on the 7th of October. The country's Constitutional Council on Monday declared incumbent Paul Biya as president-elect with over 70% of valid votes cast. Biya swept majority of votes in nine regions except for the littoral region where opposition candidate Maurice Kamto won. The U.S. has urged all parties, including the government, to respect the rule of law, resolve any disputes peacefully through established legal channels and avoid hate speech. South Africa's former foreign affairs apartheid-era minister Pagbota will be laid to rest in the capital Pretoria this morning. He died last week in hospital at the age of 86. Speaking ahead of the funeral, his friend and former colleague Rolf Meyer described him as a man who was always passionate about transforming South Africa's political landscape. Bota was foreign minister for 17 years from 1977 to 1994, making him the world's longest-serving minister of foreign affairs. He's also the also served as energy minister for two years in former President Nelson Mandela's government. Mayor says Bota was a good friend. I remember him as a friend, as somebody who was uh, in a certain way larger than life and who left a legacy behind in terms of what he stood for as somebody who wanted to see change and reform in South Africa and was one of those that stood up first within the uh, old National Party and said the party had to go and um, it made the task in a certain way easier for us that followed that could say the same. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump has warned that America will bolster its nuclear arsenal to put pressure on Russia and China. He repeated his belief that Russia has violated the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which he has threatened to leave. Russia denies this. The Cold War-era treaty banned medium-range missiles, reducing the perceived Soviet threat to European nations. The BBC's Peter Bowers reports. Donald Trump says the United States has more money than anyone else and will build up its nuclear arsenal until, as he puts it, people come to their senses, suggesting that China should also be part of the agreement with Russia and the US. Mr Trump reaffirmed his intention to tear up the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. He said it was because Russia had not adhered to the spirit of the agreement or the agreement itself. The Kremlin said Russia would take action to restore the balance of military power if the US started to develop intermediate nuclear weapons. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A dusk to dawn curfew has been imposed on Kaduna City in north-central Nigeria, where disagreement between youth at Kasua Magani has led to the massacre of about 100 people over the weekend. A state government has given orders for the arrest of anyone who is in any way connected with the violence, while a special squad of the Nigerian police has been mandated to maintain a 24-hour surveillance on Kaduna. Colin Zatohengbe reports. 
Business activities were disrupted in parts of Kaduna Metropolis following youth restiveness which snowballed into a full-blown violence in strategic communities around the city, leading to the death of dozens of people, most of whom were not directly involved in the crisis. Eyewitness reported that over 100 casualties were counted collectively as aggrieved youth soon took over the disturbance, creating mayhem as people had their houses, vehicles, and other valuables burnt down as the violence ensued. The Kaduna State Governor Nasser Erufai during an inspection tour of the affected communities told journalists that government source had confirmed 55 people dead and numerous others injured. The governor said anyone found to be culpable will be prosecuted. This country belongs to all of us. This state belongs to all of us. No one is going to chase anyone away. So you must learn to live with everyone in peace and justice. What is happening here is totally unacceptable and I have charged the security agencies and the authorities here, local and uh, traditional authorities, to ensure that everyone connected with this, whether as participant or instigator or even watching while it is going on, is apprehended and prosecuted. Reports of the violent incident caused panic all over Kaduna State, prompting the police to swing into action to calm the situation and arrest anyone found to be involved in the killings of innocent people. Police intervention yielded some fruits with the arrest of some 22 people who were now assisting the police in investigation. But of note is that some people who were kidnapped by the violent youth were rescued. Spokesperson of the Nigerian Police Force, Jim Omoshud, told journalists that progress had been made. The IGP condemns in entirety the attack and killings of innocent people. Calls for calm as the police special investigation team has made significant progress in the investigation into the attacks and the killings of the innocent people. Uh, 22 suspects directly involved uh, in the killing of this innocent people have been arrested and they are now in police custody. Some of the prominent personality uh, who were earlier kidnapped have been rescued uh, by the investigation team and they are currently uh, being reunited uh, with their family. Following the increasing level of incessant insecurity and to prevent further escalation with crisis and as youths in other parts of the environment began to gather, the governor of Kaduna State placed a dusk to dawn coffee on Kaduna and the various trouble spots, especially at Kashua Magane, where the problems began. Responding to the media in a telephone interview, the State Commissioner of Police, Abdurrahman Ahmed, said the coffee was to prevent a bandwagon effect of violence. So, the 24 hours curfew was handy because we cannot allow people to continue to move and pedal rumors when the curfew was imposed. It will only impose on in Kaduna Metro and Environ and then Kujama where the problems started this evening plus Kajuru in addition to the one that is already in focus at Kaswamagan. So this is uh, an interim measure so the, the, the situation will determine when the coffee will be lifted but as far as this uh, period of time is concerned it is enforced and nobody will be allowed to be moving uh, until or only those on essential services and also those on emergency or any other essential uh, movement. Security forces were deployed to the streets to contain the rampaging youths and mandated to arrest. Anyone found to be steering up violence in a 24-hour surveillance operation 
with powers to search suspected hideouts and exert control over hotspots in the state. Jim Omoshu says even government infrastructures where criminals could hide away would be searched. The personnel of the Police Special Intervention Force will carry out 24 hours surveillance and patrol, stop and search operations, and continuous rate of identified criminal hideout and black spot with a view to arrest promptly troublemakers and their sponsor and nip in the bud any further attempt to cause violent or other criminality in the area. The deployment of the police personnel will equally cover communities and vulnerable points. Uh, inclusive government and private infrastructures and facility in Kasua, Magani, Kajuru local government area and the environment. Since the resurgence of violence occasioned by the deeds of the terror groups, Kaduna State has been one of the communities to have suffered from the effect of insurgent insurgent activities tremendously. The present development is not unconnected with business dispute amongst youths at Kasua Magani on Thursday evening. The bloodshed had been condemned and community, religious and political leaders have been urged to put their words in check. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato before Channel Africa News. The Democratic Republic of Congo's National Coordination of the Catholic League Council believes the country's government has failed to secure Congolese and should improve or resign. The statement has come out after at least 12 people were killed last Saturday in Beni in the eastern province of North Kivu by alleged Ugandan rebels of allied democratic forces who always attack and kill people in that part of the DRC. Jean-Noël Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. It's now more than four years since people of Beni have been victim of repeated massacre the Democratic Republic of Congo's government has always attributed to Ugandan rebels of allied democratic forces well known as ADF. People in the territory of the eastern province of North Kivu have been experiencing an ongoing frustration and trauma on a daily basis. It's really a serious panic inhabitants of Beni live in every day. The national coordination of the Catholic League Council doesn't find it clear that repeated massacre in Beni have always been attributed to Uganda rebels of ADF, but nothing has put it clear since the last four years. This Catholic church structure then wonders who are the actual killers and believes they must be getting support from political actors here. Cyprian Mulwa is from the National Coordination of the Catholic League Council. About the uh, situation in uh, Beni, we have to know exactly who are the killers. Those persons named ADF, it's not clear. We think that uh, there is many persons in power who are supporting them. There must be some of people in the government who are complice of uh, this situation. That's why we think that the local population in Beni must stand up in order to tell those who are ruling the country that enough is enough. And indeed, people in that part of the Democratic Republic of Congo have demonstrated on Sunday to express their anger against this usual massacre and denounce the panic in which they live on a daily basis.
The North Kivu Civil Society believes this is a terrorist movement that remains a serious threat, not only against the Democratic Republic of Congo, but against the region and the whole world. Omar Kavota is from the North Kivu Civil Society. This is an unfair attack that we deplore and we think our institutions have to take it seriously in order to put an end to this terrorist threat. The threat is not only against the Congolese but against the region and all. That's why all of us should come together to finish this terrorist movement. Meanwhile, the National Army, the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo in the province of North Kivu has said an operation is underway to track those killers. The military authorities have then called on inhabitants of Benin to remain calm and collaborate with the military to make it easy for the army to succeed and cut those alleged Ugandan rebels of allied democratic forces. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The United States ambassador has called on the United Nations Secretary General to condemn what she calls the unprofessional conduct of Cuban and Bolivian delegates who disrupted a U.S.-sponsored event at the World Body last week. Diplomats from both Cuba and Bolivia protested loudly and shouted down speakers at an event to highlight the struggles of political prisoners in Cuba. Ambassador Nikki Haley has since written to the UN chief, urging him to establish an investigation over what she calls the serious misconduct of the Cuban and Bolivian delegations. Sean Barspeace reports. Listen to the chaotic scene inside the ECHOSOC chamber when Cuban and Bolivian diplomats refused to allow the event to proceed quietly, banging their fists on tables and drowning out speakers at the podium. Ambassador Haley has written to the Secretary General Antonio Guterres calling the behavior of diplomats outrageous and urging him to publicly condemn the appalling behavior and destruction of UN property a matter we put to the SG's deputy spokesperson, Farhan Haq. At this stage, uh, uh, having received uh, this letter, we're studying it uh, and we'll uh, evaluate what kind of response can be made. You, you'll have seen what we said at uh, the time of the incident uh, and, uh, and we'll continue to evaluate uh, whether any, what further steps are needed. The letter refers to serious damage to desks in the ECHOSOC chamber and insists that delegations responsible for any damage be liable for the costs but Huck seemed unsure. I'm not aware at this stage of, uh, of any uh, particular damages for which there, there are costs. If that changes, I will let you know. Cuba earlier also complained to the Secretary General about the jailed-for-what event, the examination of the plight of Cuba's political prisoners, arguing that it was in violation of UN rules about the use of its premises. This was Cuba's ambassador, Anayansi Rodriguez Camello, speaking after their sit-in protest. Cuba condemns once again and rejects in the strongest possible terms this new anti-Cuban action by the United States government, which constitutes an affront to the sovereignty of the Cuban people and disrespect of their right to self-determination. This is an attack not only on a sovereign state, my, state my, my country, Cuba, but also on the principles of multilateralism and the foundational basis of this organization, of the United Nations. Awaiting further clarity on how the UN will respond, this is what the spokesperson Stefan Dujeric said last week 
about the hosting of events by member states on its premises. The rules require that a proposed event must be consistent with the purposes and principles of the UN and that it has to be non-commercial in nature. As a result of this requirement, the sponsoring permanent mission must certify that this is the case upon requesting the use of a UN conference room. In the implementation of the in-house regulations since their adoption in 96, the Secretariat has relied on the responsibility of member states to proceed in accordance with the relevant regulations and the purposes and principles of the Charter. The sponsoring mission is fully responsible for the content of the meeting. The United States and Cuba have strained relations related particularly to the continued unilateral economic embargo of the island despite multiple UN General Assembly resolutions calling for it to be lifted. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. South Africa's Minister for Women in the Presidency, Batabile Lamini, says her department will hold public hearings to allow victims of abuse to break their silence without being re-victimized. Lamini was speaking at the Port Elizabeth High Court when Nigerian pastor Omatoso and co-accused appeared. She was part of organizations that went to support the alleged rape victims of Omatoso, who is facing a number of charges that include human trafficking and rape. Anda Ngonji reports. Scores of ANC Women's League members and other organizations were chanting outside the Port Elizabeth High Court in support of the alleged rape victims. The league's president, Batabile Lamini, has urged women to unite and fight against gender-based violence, human trafficking, rape and sexual abuse. The trial was attended by various organizations, including the EFF, DA and UDM, as well as Eastern Cape Premier Pumula Maswale and Communications Minister Nomvula Mugonyane. Lamini says in a bid to curb re-victimization, the public hearings will provide a good platform for victims. Even in the system, women are often re-victimized. These hearings will offer women a platform to speak about their experiences. They will also shed the veil of shame that comes with being abused. And finally, heal the pain they have been carrying alone. The hearings will be national and will invite women to speak out against their experiences of abuses in the guise of religion and faith. Lamini has also strongly condemned the manner in which the first witness in the case of controversial pastor Timothy Omotoso was cross-examined. She says they are planning to approach the Bar Council to lay a complaint against the defense lawyer. Cross-examination should not be a platform used by legal practitioners to enforce secondary trauma on witnesses. We believe the advocate's conduct was an overreach. We'll be consulting the Bar Council of Advocates to address this. The law must be proactive to victims and survivors in its processes towards justice. Any acts that are found to cause secondary trauma to victims of crime should be addressed immediately by all affected. Eastern Cape Premier Pum Lamaswale says the province supports Omotoso's alleged victims. Maswale says it's imperative to support rape and sexual abuse victims. Coming here today was uh, important to come and show solidarity with the victims and also to ensure that justice truly is seen to be done so that the perpetrators 
get to book. And the other important thing was about the future. It's important that we galvanize conscious action on the part of both male and females in the struggle against patriarchy as well as the gender-based violence we see. It's going to take conscious men in action together with women. Gender activist and whistleblower Pamela Mabini has urged the government to assist in the shutting down of controversial churches. All I I, I can ask from you, uh, Minister, is that if we can be united and fight all these uh, churches, we need to close these churches, all the fight, all the false prophets. We can't allow these uh, pastors to come and use our people. Our people are, 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 are dealing with the poverty. Our people are desperate. Spokesperson for the Alliance of Pentecostal and Charismatic Churches in South Africa, Samuel Pumulani Ndlovu, says this is a misrepresentation of charismatic churches. Ndlovu says he also supports those who wish to close churches that promote abuse. Uh, It's not all the charismatic churches. It's just those churches that are promoting these acts of violence against women. And we stand very firm. I'm saying that churches cannot be used to abuse women, to rape women. We are saying those churches are not churches. If communities want to shut them down, we strongly support that idea. Meanwhile, some members of the Jesus Dominion International Church continue to support Omutoso. I am Andangonji in Port Elizabeth. Each year on the 24th of October, the Global Network of United Nations organizes a variety of events to mark UN Day. As the UN commemorates 73 years of existence in Zimbabwe, various activities ranging from ceremonies, seminars and panel discussions have been lined up. This year, the UN has incorporated youth in a bid to help achieve SDGs by 2030 amid fears of climate change. Simon Wichema reports from Harare. Zimbabwe joins the rest of the world in commemorating United Nations' 73rd year of existence in the capital Harare. As such, a youth exhibition that shall run from Monday the 22nd to the 26th of October in a bid to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030 is underway. United Nations UN is an intergovernmental organization tasked to promote international cooperation and to create and maintain international order following the 1945 World War II. Since then, the global body has been mandated with ensuring peace and security through the Security Council, but today the United Nations is seized with a new challenge, food security and climate change. Southern African Development Community, SADAC, is one of the worst affected on the continent, with severe droughts and floods being experienced more oftenly, the UN resident coordinator, Bishop Parajuli, said. We decided um, to run this event here because uh, normally we have a formal events and various other publications, etc. But we decided this year we want to run an open event because UN is about you and I together. UN is not the UN functionary. UN belongs to everybody. And, and everybody needs to know what we do uh, on the ground, how we are working to change people's lives. And what does it mean by sustainable development goal? Is that just a phrase? Or does it really mean changing people's life? 
and this is what you will see in each of the booth uh, when you visit uh, the work of the United Nations system. Currently, through the UN, member states are working hard to fight hunger and poverty through sustainable development goals, SDGs, whose 17 targets should be achieved by 2030. Toshiyuku Iwado, the Japanese ambassador to Zimbabwe, raised concern over the effects of climate change in Sadak. Uh, we do concern. We do concern. And of course, uh, you know, the SDG launching and uh, the Paris uh, you know, the, uh, agreement, it's uh, you know, done in parallel. Now, if you look at the, uh, the SDG, the, law, you know, the, the, the documents, uh, there are many aspects in this document which could be very negatively uh, affected by the global warming. So it's in parallel. So without tackling the, uh, the global warming issue, we cannot tackle in an effective manner the uh, SDG issue. So that, that is what I understand. And uh, so unfortunately, uh, you know, so far, the things are not moving so well. So it, 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 it cannot be uh, done by individual countries. It has to be the collective action. No. The, all the other member countries on this globe need to cooperate and do their own business to tackle the global warming. And that is what I, so I believe. Nails Bowser, head of program at the World Food Program, WFP, and implementing agents on food security, explained how these agents is helping to eradicate hunger. If you look at uh, globally the World Food Programme's footprint, we work in many different countries, but over 50% of those countries and over 50% of the issues that we're addressing in those countries are either caused or exacerbated by the impact of climate change. So it's a huge issue, and we address that by not just reacting, uh, but also looking at uh, addressing the root causes and building resilience. So for instance, here in Zimbabwe, uh, as we speak, we work with uh, about 100,000 people in rural areas that are mostly affected by climate change, and we help them look at uh, how they can rebuild or build new assets that help them overcome the droughts, the dry spells, etc etc i mean a lot of these if i pick up the example again of the asset creation programs the that's the youth that's mainly involved and it's not just about hey let's build a dam but it's first we sit down with the youth with the different representatives of a community and think through what the issues are we do transact walks in those areas we find out what are the immediate needs what are the medium to longer term needs to address the issue and i think the youth play a pivotal role in thinking through that building on knowledge that's already there and also thinking outside of the book how is the situation going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years from now? So what can we do now to be there in the coming years? Meanwhile, Mutongi Tariro Kawara, a Zimbabwean student doing Masters in Public Administration with the Midland State University, acknowledged the need to combat climate change. Okay, I think it's important because it actually empowers us as youth. Because uh, we've been taking like um, a backward role, we don't really know how to engage uh, in the real world. We've only been studying like theory, uh, and uh, but in the real world, we haven't been actually engaging in the ways that we can actually mitigate on these disasters, on the way we can actually foster sustainable livelihoods. So maybe as UN and um, they've been doing a great job, maybe there's a need for for us as youths to actually actively engage when these uh, disaster preparedness and management schemes are being put in place. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Cameroon's President-elect Paul Bia thanks citizens at home and abroad for voting massively for him to continue his role as president. Ethiopia signs a peace deal with the separatist Ogaden National Liberation Front, formally ending more than three decades of insurgency in the eastern Somali regional state. And Nigerian pro-Biafra and pro-independence leader Namdi Kanu has been missing for a year after Nigerian army raid discloses he was in Israel preparing for his return. Those are the stories making headlines. It's 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's tell you now about the Anzisha Prize which is meant for the development of young entrepreneurs. It is Africa's biggest award for the youngest entrepreneurs which hands out over a hundred thousand US dollars every year in funding to the top 20 of the continent's brightest entrepreneurs. To tell us more on this, we are now joined on the line by Josh Adler, who is manager for the Anzisha Prize. Josh, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Uh, Good morning, Lily. Thanks for having me. Now, how long has the competition been running for? We've been running for eight years now. Well, and how did it come about? Uh, it started as an innovation prize to celebrate uh, teenagers who were doing really innovative things. And the idea, it's a demonstration effect prize. So it's about finding people who do amazing things to encourage others to follow in their footsteps. But as the jobs crisis has uh, become top of mind for everybody, we have slowly become the biggest um, entrepreneurship prize uh, where we're hoping to find examples and stories of amazing entrepreneurship across the continent as a way to encourage teenagers to think about choosing the same path. Josh, what sort of criteria do you use in selecting the winners? So um, it's a very interesting prize because um, because of its pan-African nature. So, for example, someone who has, uh, as in one of this year's finalists, who's just achieved... Um, incredible success by just starting and running a successful uh, ice manufacturing business in Libya where you only have four hours of power a day versus maybe someone who's starting a tech company in Nigeria or South Africa. There's a relativity to how we think about scoring. Um, So the judge's decision is very difficult. Um, But we look at relevance to the community or country you're in, um, the opportunity for it to scale, uh, how they would work with the support of African Leadership Academy, MasterCard Foundation, and the partners who are in the prize, um, and a, a blend of factors, but also critically is leadership potential. We're looking for people that will inspire others, um, and as an academy, that's it's a real strength of ours. Tell us about the judging panel. How is it put together in terms of the people that make the final decision with regards to the winners? Yeah, we've been... Um, very fortunate over the years to have um, 
you know, some of the most powerful people uh, in both in business, uh, civil society, and otherwise, uh, judging me and be surprised. Um, so this year, for example, we have two really strong South Africans in uh, Paul Oteka and Antetu uh, Kushesi, who I'm sure both of those names are familiar. Um, globally this year, or from an African perspective, the keynote speaker tonight is Sindosha Gaia, who um, built one of the biggest e-commerce giants of Nigeria. Um, and um, we've just been very blessed. Josh, with regards to um, the live streaming, how is that going to work, and why did you decide to go this route? Um, the idea is that this hopefully over a long period of time will become almost like the Grammys of youth entrepreneurship, where schools and universities everywhere tune in, not only for the gala, but for the pitch competition, which ran yesterday and was also live streamed. Um, it's very easy. Um, this evening, just look for the hashtag WatchNZishaLive. You can also go to NZishaPrize.org and sign up to get a reminder this evening. Um, and just follow us on all the NZisha Prize uh, social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Um, the show kicks off uh, from about 6.30 and uh, the gala officially starts at 7.30 tonight, South Africa time. You mentioned earlier the fact that you're very lucky in terms of the Anzisha Prize and how um, everything has sort of worked out and come together. Tell us about the support so far. Um, you know, you mentioned a, for a few prominent people, of, uh, um, African people, who are part of uh, um, the Anzisha Prize, uh, uh, you know, uh, program, so to speak. The support that you've received so far and that um, you've seen come in, tell us about that. And what does it do with reg- in terms of the entrepreneurs themselves, even the ones who do not win the prize? Uh, so first of all, everybody receives a financial reward. So even if you are not one of the grand prize winners, you receive $2,500. So it's a material um, financial investment anyway. Secondly, each fellow receives a support program worth over $10,000 each um, in mentorship and other kinds of um, non-monetary support. Um, Our partnership with MasterCard Foundation is longstanding um, and we create a huge amount of opportunities for young entrepreneurs and young people generally together. Fundamentally, we don't have enough job generative entrepreneurs starting at this age and they're never going to create enough jobs unless young people take ownership of the situation for themselves. So we're at the forefront of this. Uh, we've started to prove that actually young people hire their friends. Um, and the more entry we can see into entrepreneurship between the ages of 15 and 22, the more likely we are to um, actually see a sea change change uh, in the employment crisis we face. So the announcement will take place this evening. What can be expected from that? From that you mentioned the gala d- dinner. Just take us through the process of uh, tonight's events. Uh, so tonight starts off with a, a red carpet uh, environment and um, sort of an ex- an expo, an exhibition uh, where all the finalists um, have uh, exhibition stands and guests are able to kind of engage with them. Um, ahead of the proceedings. Um, it's a really, um, it's hosted the African Leadership Academy, which of course maybe you know has at any point in time over 35 African countries uh, represented in its community. So we'll have spoken word and dance and other sorts of um, features of the show tonight. Um, then of course everyone has their moment with, uh, you, you know, the funders and a nice photo opportunity. Um, and then uh, the grand prize winner is announced after a year of waiting uh, to much fanfare to uh, 
you know, I think those that are watching online um, and, and elsewhere. And um, it, it then resonates after that. So people get huge homecomings in their countries depending on just having got to be a finalist. Um, and the winners obviously celebrated heavily in the media in the coming days. Josh, thank you so much for joining us and all the best for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks, you too. And that was Josh Adler, manager for the Anzisha Prize, joining us on the line. South Africa's new finance minister, Titumboweni's medium-term budget policy statement is expected to give clarity on government's intention to reprioritize 50 billion rand of funds to stimulate the economy and create jobs. President Sil Ramaphosa announced the stimulus package in September. Economists say reprioritizing funds is the better option rather than increasing taxes. Tsepo Mungwai reports. All eyes will be on the new finance minister, Tito Mboweni, on how government is going to kickstart the new economic recovery plan. The new stimulus package has set aside a 400 billion rand infrastructure fund to construct and improve roads. Economists say this is the most practical way of stimulating the economy. And they are optimistic that the new finance minister will reprioritize government spending. Economist Mike Schusler. I think there's going to be some because I think Treasury staff have already started working on that. But I think by the time we reach the budget in February, uh, we will see even more reprioritization. Um, we certainly have a strong finance minister now, and there is a better chance that we are going to see more spending on infrastructure, for example, than on wages. But it might not all happen in one go. I think we've got to remember government spends its money on its plans and those plans are drawn up years in advance. So to just change midstream is always difficult and especially when you've got a new finance minister for less than two weeks. President Sil Ramaphosa has appointed a 10-member advisory panel on land reform. The plan also hopes to support emerging farmers and implement expropriation of land without compensation. But where will all the money come from? Economist Ian Cruikshanks. They can first of all utilise under underutilised funds so far. A lot of government departments, for fear of being of making a mistake, of having a finger pointed out in them and say, "Hey, you know, this this is this was not justified. Uh, you shouldn't have done the spending." They do nothing at all. So you have a state of paralysis among some departments, and that's where we need to say, I think, well, if you can't utilise the capital that's been offered to you. We'll take it away from you and put it somewhere where there's likely to be a quicker turnaround in activity, activity which is likely then to lead to foster growth results. The new visa regulations are in place to boost the tourism sector. South Africa has lost a lot of money because of restrictive visa regulations. The regulations are aimed at stimulating growth in the tourism and business sector. Crookshanks explains. We have to realize the uh, employment, employment growth potential in the tourist industry. What is, what is what we believe is that for every seven tourists 
that visit South Africa, you create one new job. Now, if you multiply that by thousands, that means many new jobs, and I think that is what we should be doing. Plus, we've got to increase the efficiency under which many of our departments uh, operate, including home affairs. The budget statement is also expected to reveal the dire state of the local economy, as Schusler explains. It looks like the budget deficit is going to be missed again, and I think that's one of the things that the rating agencies and analysts are going to be looking out for. The question mark is going to be, how big is that miss? So if we get to, say, 3.8%, um, that's very much expected. But if Treasury announced that it's going to be a 4.2% uh, budget deficit, then I think the market will take it badly. Rating agencies are going to be watching with keen interest on whether South Africa's budget deficit is going to balloon to over 4% of GDP. And economists are concerned that if this happens, then we'll find it difficult for the country to raise capital and pay favorable interest rates. Tsepo Mungwai, Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Thanks, Balungile, and a very good morning. The Central Bank of Kenya can tender the currency deal after the Court of Appeal upheld its decision to procure the legal tender from British firm Delarue. The printing and supply of new generation banknotes case is, however, headed to the Supreme Court. The important news is that the Central Bank of Kenya can be allowed to replace the current banknotes with new outlook ones if it wins the case at the Apex Court. 
South Africa's Finance Minister Tito Mboweni's medium-term budget policy statement is expected to give clarity on government's intention to reprioritize the 34 million US dollars of funds to stimulate the economy and create jobs. President Cyril Ramaphosa announced the stimulus package last month. Economists say the reprioritizing of funds is the better option rather than increasing taxes. Mbuweni will deliver his medium maiden term budget on Wednesday. Economist Mike Schussler. I think we need to accept and internalize the fact that all of us are now in a fiscal crisis. That's why the president has very little room to maneuver. That is why he announced a shift in expenditure of infrastructure. What we'd like to see is to ensure that, first of all, we root out and defeat state capture. I think there's going to be some because I think Treasury staff have already started working on that. But I think by the time we reach the budget in February, uh, we will see even more reprioritization. Um, we certainly have a strong finance minister now, and there is a better chance that we are going to see more spending on infrastructure, for example, than on wages. But it might not all happen in one go. I think we've got to remember government spends its money on its plans and those plans are drawn up years in advance. So to just change midstream is always difficult and especially when you've got a new finance minister for less than two weeks. Meanwhile, South Africans have taken to social media to respond to Mboweni's tweet where he called for input on his medium-term budget policy statement. They suggested, among other things, that Mboweni look into government spending cuts and slashing petrol price hikes, as well as value-added tax exemptions for chicken, books and women's sanitary products. A business leadership South Africa CEO, Bonang Mohale, explains. I think we need to accept and internalize the fact that all of us are now in a fiscal crisis. That's why the president has very little room to maneuver. That is why he announced a shift in expenditure of infrastructure. What we'd like to see is to ensure that, first of all, we root out and defeat state capture because it's costing us a hundred billion rent a year every year on average in the last 10 years. We need to reduce our debt. We need to reduce the bloated civil service. We must fix our state-owned enterprises and state-owned companies. The African Development Bank and African Trade Insurance Agency have announced the successful completion of a 500 million US dollar credit insurance deal structured to cover a portion of the bank's portfolio of non-sovereign operations in Africa. This transaction is expected to have an impact demonstration effect to encourage similar institutions to invest more on the continent in future. While ATI will be the direct insurer facing the African Development Bank, the transaction involves the participation of a number of Lloyds and company private reinsurers who will share the risk of African financial institutions. Supporters of a multi-billion U.S. dollar sea bridge in China have described it as an engineering marvel that will boost the business and cut travel time. Chinese President Xi Jinping will launch the world's longest sea bridge that connects Hong Kong, Macau and mainland China. The 55-kilometer crossing includes a snaking road bridge and underwater tunnel and costs over $17 million. After a two-day delay, 
These people say they are pleased to see the work is complete. I think this bridge will bring great convenience to the whole of Zhuhai, Hong Kong and Macau and promote the economic development of the whole area of the Pearl River Delta. Today I'm off duty, so I have taken my child to see the bridge. It's magnificent. The US dollar trades at 10.47 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.70 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 3.70 Brazilian Real. At 65.33 Russian Ruble. And at 73.35 Indian Rupee. 6.94 Chinese Yuan. 14.32 to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 76 pence to the British Pound. 87 cents to the Euro. Gold is trading at $1,224. Platinum. Eight seventeen dollars pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at uh, seventy nine dollars fifty cents a barrel. Africa rise and shine. A sports update up next was Figle Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with athletics. Athletics South Africa, ASA, has announced three preparation squads ahead of various major international championships. The 47-member ASA senior preparation squad was named in the build-up to the 2019 IAAF World Championships to be held in Doha, Qatar, next September. The senior squad includes 33 men and 14 women and is spearheaded by the 400-meter world record holder Wade Fanikerk, who is expected to return to action from a knee injury after missing the entire 2018 season. The full-strength squad also includes 800-meter superstar Kasta Semenya, long jumpers Luvo Manyonga and Rushwal Samai, javelin thrower Sunet Feldyun, and South Africa's fastest man and woman Akani Simbine and Karina Horn, respectively, who have all shown prominence in the 2018 ASA senior rankings. ASA confirmed it had also sent its excellence manager and former Olympic 800-meter silver medalist Ezekiel Sipeng to Doha to assess the conditions, with athletes expected to face multiple challenges at the global championships in Qatari capital, including extreme temperatures and late competition schedules. Sipeng will present his report on the host city at an ASA athletes briefing in Kempton Park on the 9th of November. And with football news about South African Football Association, SAFA Vice President Ria Lidwaba says the association is hard at work to resolve matters between them and the South African Broadcasting Corporation, the SABC. South African fans experienced a national team blackout on all SABC radio stations and television when the senior national team thrashed Seychelles 6-0 in a 2019 AFCON qualifier a fortnight ago. This follows a breakdown in negotiations for a new contract for broadcast rights of Bafana Bafana matches. Lidwaba says SAFA President Denis Jordan is looking into other options to try to resolve the matter.
I think the president, our president, is looking into other options, yes. uh, but you must also remember that there, there is this uh, law that, uh, that with ICASA where they are saying a national leave can only be on a public broadcaster so that each and every supporter that want to see it. That, that's the challenge that we are facing right now. But I think it's something that we are also taking to the Department of Sports so that we can be able to look at that and see how best we can be able to achieve in terms of that. And Cristiano Ronaldo is set to return to former club Manchester United as Juventus travel to Old Trafford, England, UK for a crunch Group H clash of the Champions League. The Portuguese striker scored 118 goals in 294 appearances for the Premier League Giants during a six-year spell which ended when he joined Real Madrid in the summer of 2009. Speaking at a news conference, Ronaldo paid tribute to his family as he spoke to reporters for the first time since denying rape allegations leveled against him by a woman who sued him in court in the United States. I know that I'm example. I know 100% in the pitch and outside the pitch. So... I'm always smile, I'm happy man, I'm blessed that I play in a fantastic club, I have a fantastic family, I have four kids, I'm healthy, I have everything, so the rest doesn't interfere on me, so I'm very, very glad. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, a dust to dawn curfew imposed on Kaduna City in north central Nigeria, and the DRC's national coordination of the Catholic League Council believes the country's government has failed to secure Congolese and should improve or resign. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Lebu Munamakulu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency double one nine two five kilohertz on the forty nine meter band to West Africa is Busim Shongo with a track titled Dingy Dingy. Oh.